Let's do this. How are you doing, everybody? Hi, hi, hi. How are you? How are you? How are you? Put this down a little bit. I can't put it down much because I got a whole new desk set up. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 180 of my live chat. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Um, let's see on the docket today. I don't know if you can tell that I have a new setup. You have uh, There's a whole new setup around the office. This shot should look roughly the same. Uh, but there's going to be a bunch of new shots that don't. You know what? I don't like having my chair like this low. Uh, and I have to put my lap. My, I have to put my my tower now under my desk, so it kind of impacts how high I can raise the. Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff going on. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday afternoon, this uh, 16th of November, 2023. So a lot to get to today. Uh, let's see. I saw some questions about uh, Jamal Hill. I saw some questions about. Champ Champ stuff, I saw some questions. There's a bunch of boxing announcements yesterday and today. The Usyk and Fury presser, I think, is going on now or just, just wrapped up. So there's a lot going on, whatever is on your mind. Thumbs up if you haven't already. Please uh, do so. Like and subscribe to the channel. It's free. It doesn't cost you a damn thing. And, of course, we'll go for about an hour with the free questions. And then if you want to put in a paid donation, you can at the end. Or you can become a member. And if you're doing the second tier of that membership, you can do it for free. You can put in a, any kind of... Uh, any kind of wrap up there for free. So your choice, your choice. But either way, I'm just glad you're here. If you want to just watch for free and you don't want to give a dime, I'm cool with that. I'm just, I'm just delighted you decided to be here to begin with. All right, so we have a lot of stuff to get to. We'll go for as, as I mentioned before. We'll go for about an hour on the free questions, and then we'll get to any of the paid stuff. And uh, yeah, that'll be that. So without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? Let's see. Let's see. Here we go. Okay. Yeah. Mm. All right, and there we are. Okay, as I mentioned, a lot to get to, not a moment to waste. Thanks to anyone who has joined through the membership. Thanks to anybody who will join today. Fun stuff, fun stuff. And uh, thanks to everyone who tuned in on Sunday. I know it was a weird change because I didn't do this last week on the normal schedule, but I did get it in, and here we are, right back on the normal schedule. So appreciate that. All right, with that in mind, let's get to the questions. Let's throw them on here if we can. I hope we got to change that one to this. All right. Let's get to these. Let's refresh very quickly. All right. Good to go. Here we are. Uh, someone's asking second year of... I was like, I'm, I'm going to very quickly answer it. Second year of university, planning on writing an essay on the realities of steroid usage and testing within a professional sport. Have you got any literature that you would recommend I read? I do this every week, right? I do this every fucking week. The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, Causes, Consequences, Solutions by Paul DeMio and Werner Muller. There you go, boys and girls. That'll take care of you. All right, getting back to this one. Uh, look, what are you reading these days? Working on The Age of Acquiescence by Steve Frazier, uh, which explores the American relationship with organized wealth and power. Myself, I think you've mentioned not finding much in fiction that grabs you, but if you're open to a wreck, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss Fuss is pretty solid. Give me just a second because I think I think I have a cold, ladies and gentlemen. I I have <sighs> my daughter. <clears throat> my daughter has been sneezing and oh, let me turn this off too, by the way. 
my daughter has been sneezing in my face for several weeks, and I've been amazed that I didn't get sick. Like, truly. And I, I feel fine. I lifted earlier today, so, like, I'm okay. But I am a little bit um, sneezy. More so than I had been before. Sort by, yeah, top. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, what am I reading these days? Okay, let's pull open the old Kindle. I bought a bunch of books recently. Some I haven't even started yet. I, I bought yesterday Michael Reed's book on Spain. Um, I bought this book by this dude named Michael Thompson called Cage Kings. How an unlikely group of moguls... Ch- fucking hell, hold on. Uh, and it goes as follows. Here, hold on. Yeah, here's the title of the book. How an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. Uh, But I've only gotten, like, I've only read the foreword to that. I I literally just got it, so that doesn't count. Let's see, what else did I get? Um, What have I started reading? Oh, I am almost done with Rashid Khalidi's... Jesus Christ. Hold on. I am almost done with... Here, hang on. This. Oh, for fuck's sake. That's my daughter, too. Here. The Hundred Years' War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi. Rashid Khalidi, um, Edward Said was a professor of literature at Columbia University. I believe Rashid Khalidi teaches there, uh, but I think he teaches more in... uh, I don't think he's in the literature department. I think he teaches more... um, History and Political Science. I'm almost done with that one. I haven't finished it. And I've just started as well, just kind of playing around with it. Uh, a dude who also went to William & Mary. Uh, he used to work for 538. His name is Walt Hickey. Walt Hickey. Uh, you are what you watch, how movies and TV affect everything. I've only done the first chapter in this one, so can't tell you a whole lot about that one. Um, but the, the uh, Rashid Khalidi book um, is transformative. There you go. That's what I'm reading. All right. Let's get back to these questions. Oops. There we are. Uh, Luke. No, excuse me. This one. I got to go in Given and Ganu's success. There we go. All right, Luke. Given and Ganu's success, do you believe there's substantial untapped potential for the UFC in Africa or specific countries within the continent? If so, why hasn't the UFC capitalized on this opportunity? And where else globally do you see untapped potential in the combat sports market. I mean, there's simply no denying that there's an enormous amount of athletic talent in any of these untapped markets um, in the global south, so to speak. Um, not just not just Africa. I would imagine if they could really nurture the market, India would be really rewarding for them. China is certainly on its way. Um, Brazil has always been there, so they don't have to worry about that. But there's other parts of Spanish-speaking Latin America that have barely been uh, tapped into. And all of these countries harness enormous amounts of athletic talent. I mean... You know, sort of, for example, I'm only going to bring this up because it's the only one that I know more closely. I know you might get tired of me bringing it up, but I can't bring up things I don't necessarily know about. But for example, um, you know, if we're talking about the global south, you're asking specifically about Africa, but if we're asking about the global south, 
you know, in Colombia, like what are the sports they excel at? It's the ones that they have some infrastructure for and some government support for. Um, they've got some uh, success in like BMX ridership and whatnot. Uh, they have some in cycling uh, as well. Obviously, in you know soccer or football, they're pretty good. But the one that I would point to would be their weightlifting team. Colombia's weightlifting team might be the best in all of South America. It might be the best in the Western Hemisphere. It is absolutely excellent, their team. And it's no small consequence. They have a better recruitment policy. They have better state support. They have state facilities. I mean, they've got all the things to make it work in a way that makes sense. They've hired people from uh, coaches from uh, successful uh, programs in other countries, um, you know, if you applied some of the same mechanisms to some of these other places um, in either North or Sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, the amount of athletic talent you could probably find is enormous, but there's a lot of things that are going to hold that back. I mean, listen, some of these countries don't have the infrastructure to hold events there, so even if you could recruit talent, you can't go back there and hold an event. I mean, Cameroon, it's not, it's not, is not probably not ready for prime time uh, in terms of having that. I know just to get to Brazil in the 2010s was a Herculean effort for the UFC because a lot of the venues didn't have climate control, which is still true, but they weren't even wired for television, right? They weren't even wired for television. Now, of course, that's not all the facilities. That's some of them. But you, I, I remember talking to Marshall Zelaznik, and he was explaining like why Fight Pass can air in certain places and not, and, like what are some of the challenges. And the, some of these facilities, even in the 2010s, 11, 2012, 2013, 2014, they just they weren't able to have uh, any kind of television component. You can imagine that there's parts of sub-Saharan Africa that are going to be like just like that, um, if not worse. So that's a big part of it. Also, there's other markets that are just a little bit ahead that with a little bit of push, they can go even further, right? The Chinese market... Uh, having a you know uh, a much more advanced economy than a lot of the poor. Co- I don't want to say that the entirety of Sub-Saharan Africa is poor, but obviously there's a lot of poverty to go around in China too. Um, but they have had rapid rapid economic development in the last forty years or so. Um, they've got much better infrastructure. They've got an enormous population. The UFC has a great television deal there. Putting a performance institute makes a lot of sense, right? Same with Mexico. And that can almost be like a bit of a proxy or a hold for the rest of, the of, of in many cases, probably the Western Hemisphere, but certainly Spanish-speaking Latin America, because obviously Mexico would be in North America. But, you know, you get the idea. I would imagine that they're going to get people from all over South America and then, again, Latin America in general. And then these are also cultures where the UFC not only has a television deal, but they have a ready-made folks who have a background in combative athletics. I mean, all of this is much further along. So, listen, we said this before. I mean, you know, part of the problem with poverty is not just what it does to someone day-to-day, but then over the course of time, it has this, like, flattening effect where all of this intellectual capital, all of this, like, athletic capital, all of this ingenuity and creativity that the individual citizens or groups together could have, it all just gets completely wiped or flattened or pulverized because most folks are just trying to survive. They're trying to hang on. They're trying to just get by, either dealing with poverty, sectarian violence, colonial, the left, the leftovers of colonial rule. I mean, you name it. There's just all kinds of fucking problems. So um, I do think there are probably some countries in South America that are ready to go. Um Obviously, South uh, South Africa is going to be um, probably a little bit more ready than others. I'm told there's a bit of a crime problem there and a bit of an infrastructure problem, but that's not altogether unsolvable. Um, 
I don't know to what extent there's any interest in Rwanda, but they have made a massive uh, turn. Interestingly enough, Equatorial Guinea has a rich economy, but um, they were, they're run by a dictator, so I don't know if how much they want to do that. Nigeria might be on that list in terms of having a little bit more development than some of the other um, places. Um, I don't know to what extent there's any interest in East Africa. Um, and also, I don't know to what extent there's any developmental MMA or martial arts programs in that area. So it's just a lot, man. It's gonna it, Part of what the UFC and part of what any major entity would want is they I think they don't mind helping to grow the area but they're going to be much more ready to partner with areas that have some uh indigenous infrastructure movements uh leagues fighters right there's just a little bit already going on that they can kind of clean up facilitate pump some money into and get it to another place uh but you know unfortunately there are just parts of the developed world that are way behind, even by other developed world, developing world country standards. Um, it's going to take somebody real special uh, to go in there first and really begin to make it work, and then somebody else will come in after that. But that first few steps of just getting things going, getting regular shows, um, recruiting fighters, giving them world class t- places to train, they're just a long way from that. But like, is there talent there? There's just not a question in my mind. There's talent there. I mean, of course, like mathematically, there just has to be. There has to be an enormous amount of talent. All right, here we go. Luke, Dana White recently suggested UFC Fight Pass as a possible option for promoters looking for networks to air future cards. Do you think this could have a negative impact on the sport of boxing if this happens? Also, do you think this could help the pro- the future prospects of MMA boxing crossovers if promoters actually do use Fight Pass? Um, I don't see it as any major disruptor. I mean, let's just sort of think about this. Who are the major promoters out there? You've got Eddie Hearn with Matchroom. You've got Golden Boy with Oscar De La Hoya. You've got Al Heyman with PBC, which we know is looking for a home, but in all likelihood, I mean, we're talking about they've got 40%, something like that, of the world's elite boxers. They're not going to go on Fight Pass, I would imagine. Um, They're going to go to a place wherever they end up. Well, they're going to get a substantial amount of money to put on these shows. I don't think UFC Fight Pass. I mean, UFC Fight Pass, they have, I'm a subscriber. They have a lot of interesting stuff, but they've got, they don't have anything super premier except for the grappling side, which is a very underdeveloped sport relative to boxing. So um, I don't really see it as any kind of major disruptor if for no other reason than, yeah, they might have the bandwidth to to air all this stuff. Like it's no, there's nothing really stopping them. But the amount of money it would cost to get anybody of significance to sign on um, just does... I don't think that Fight Pass has that kind of a budget. I mean, UFC could if they really wanted to, I suppose. But I just see that as profoundly unlikely. So you might get some smaller ones, like Lou DiBella, who's a good promoter, but a bit of a smaller promoter. You might get something like that. Um, and that has some value. But then you'd be at the... To your point... You'd be at something more of like the prospect level, like deep prospect level, something more along the lines of the show boxy kind of level. You would not get any major. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say you wouldn't. I'd be very surprised, very surprised if you got any major promoter to sign there. You're going to get a smaller promoter and it could be a good promoter, but not a guy with a sizable stable whose roster you can pit a lot of guys against and make more key co- uh, contests. 
let's go back to this. <clears throat> Let me go to this one first. Luke, uh, given the risks and possible pitfalls of the fighter class action lawsuit, what do you think are the chances they settle or actually see this trial through? As someone who likes open markets and think there are real benefits to multiple viable MMA organizations, I would love to see this go through trial and the fighters win. I, I, this is really impossible to know, except to say I, I, I still think the chance that they settle is the likeliest thing. Um, because of the cost of how this could blow up for either party. And I think either party knows that. And so because either party knows that, they're more likely to find a solution where they get some kind of win. Whether it's, you know, we talked about it before, whether it's a monetary win, whether it's a a monetary win plus some kind of contractual change, something that they can tangibly say is great and the UFC can give something away without giving away everything. But, you know, UFC has, I mean, this is the thing about it, guys. I've been covering UFC a long time. Like, if there is one thing that they always do, they, they're not stupid. That That's not, really not at all the case. They're, they run by very smart people. They're run by capable people. Their law firm that they use is filled with, you know, Harvard and Yale and Stanford grads. Like, these are not people who are dumbasses making bad decisions. However, however, dude, if there's one central theme to UFC leadership, no, even as it's changed, well, at least since Zufa bought it. Dude, it's always fucking hardball with them. Always. It's always hardball with them. Are they going to play hardball here? Because look, they can play hardball and win. I mean, ima- imagine if they said, fuck it, let's go to trial. And then they just dunk on the fighters and the fighters get nothing. And then they're forced to pay the wages of the lawyers, the lawyer fees essentially for the defendants. You know, what are they just, I mean, the UFC absolutely cleans their clock. That would be somewhat, not, not the result itself, but the the posture, the legal posture, the strategic posture that the UFC ha- would be taking in a case like that. That'd be exactly the same thing they take all the fucking time. Um, it's kind of what how I understand them, you know. Again, even with going from the Fertitas to... Ari Emanuel and WME. It's I I I they they've only ever played hardball, only. Uh, but do they want to play hardball here and risk losing everything that they've or you know big chunks of what they've built? I suspect that they don't. I suspect that they settle. I think I think the settling is the likeliest, and that gives them some freedom to write their future a little bit rather than being at the whim of what a judge or potentially a kind of jury might ultimately say um yeah i think that the i think settling is the likeliest but <laughs> I, I mean it's it's i mean these are high stakes decisions high stakes decisions all right here we go let's get some fight talk in luke who do you fancy in a matchup between poetan and hill to be quite candid i would favor hill he will be the small favorite or small underdog and i think he gets it done Alex often backs up in straight lines. That's true, and doesn't love move. I think you mean his head. He'll buy round two KO. I, I gotta tell you, I've been finding some of the like rotten attitudes towards uh, Hill somewhat surprising. Um, yeah, hold on. Let me let me just put. I gotta put. I can't breathe because my shit's closing up. Hang on. Uh. Um. Putting aside 
the fact that I don't share his worldview at all. I mean, I think that he is, I, I don't know, I, I have to double check, I don't know this, but I, I believe that he is a fan of Andrew Tate, which is a decision that I find uh, somewhat incomprehensible. He's not the only one. Um, but but I do find that people vastly underestimate his game, like like crazily so. Um, so a couple things I've seen about it, Namely, people say he's got a limited game, like he just has boxing. First of all, not true. Just not true. And uh, second of all, even if that was true, I'm not even sure that would necessarily fucking matter. We all know how good um, Pereira is, and we know what he's good at. At least we have a decent idea of it. Uh, And he's only getting better as well. And obviously, his kickboxing pedigree is, quite literally in the UFC, basically second to none. So it's not that if you believe in Alex that I think that that's some kind of crazy thing, but you know this isn't kickboxing. The gloves are smaller. The movement inside of the fighting space is very different. And you might be asking, like, why would you? Why, why would I have? You know, to the to the or rather, to the extent that anybody does have confidence in Jamal Hill, what would be the reasons, guys? This is like number one for me. First of all, he has fucking excellent vision, like. Excellent vision. Go, you don't please don't take my word for it. Go look at his fights. Go look at the Jimmy Crute fight. Go look at the Johnny Walker fight. Go look at these fights. And what do you notice? His anticipation, his ability to accurately land shots, his shot selection, and his timing. These are all functions of the fact that he has a very calm and uh, clear ability to see what's happening in front of him and make split-second but very good decisions. His vision is excellent, excellent. It makes his defense so good. I don't mean defense by, like, he never gets hit. I don't think that's quite... Actually, let me look up his numbers. I wonder what his numbers are. Let's see. Jamal Hill fight metric. What are his numbers? Let's blow this up so you can see it here, and I'll pull it up here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Here. There. These are his numbers. So, strikes landed per minute, 7.31. That's insanely high, right? I mean, he's he is, he is active and accurate statistically without any question. Striking accuracy, 54%. That's about right where it should be. Strikes absorbed, 3.35, about average. Nothing too high, too low. That's, you know, but, and also he's got a nearly 2 to 1... Actually, he has a more than uh, two-to-one positive differential. That's extremely high. Striking defense, 47%. And again, here, takedowns and takedown defense, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you get the idea. What I would say is his vision is absolutely superb. He can see things coming, and he can make great decisions as a consequence. He does not panic. Um, he has total belief in his abilities, total belief in what he sees, total belief in his ability to make use of what he did. The, the Johnny Walker fight, right? He got off and then came over the top. The guys who can slip in MMA uh, and then counter and, uh, as they slip, they have just sizable advantages over the rest of the competition because most guys, not in boxing, but in, in, even in high-level MMA, are not great at slipping and countering. Dude, Jamal Hill's very good at it. He's very, he's very good at it. He's like very good at slipping and countering or anticipating something and then landing uh, as guys try to blitz him. Like, he's really good at that. So that's one of those games where just that portion of it, people look at it and go, oh, he doesn't do a lot of other things, right? He doesn't go for a bunch of takedowns. He doesn't have insane back-taking ability. You know, he doesn't have spin kicks. He doesn't have 
you know, the most amazing ground and pound or guard passing. He doesn't do the full array of things that some of the other guys do, but who gives a shit? Like, he got to a world title without having to necessarily have command and mastery of those skills, but the ones he does have, it's simple. It's not easy, right? It's not some groundbreaking thing that he's doing. People can see what he's doing. So it's simple to diagnose, but it's very, very hard to pull off to get the timing and to get the accuracy to do things the way he does, and he has the overall vision to do it. That's the first thing. Then getting back to the central argument that he doesn't do other things other than box is simply not true. First of all, he does boxing really well. He's very good at putting pressure on guys, which I think folks underestimate. So many high-level MMA fighters, for as much as they face somebody who is going to put pressure on them, seem to not be great at handling that. And he will put pressure on you, make no mistake about it. That's Those are the, some of the first things I'd say. But getting back to the point about his wider array of skills... It's true that I think early to the middle parts of his record, he was somewhat limited. Uh, but if you watch the Glover fight, correct me if I'm wrong, he had leg kick. I mean, let's pull up the numbers on this one, right? Am I out of my mind? I don't think I am. What did he do in the Glover fight? Jesus, he beat the shit out of Glover. He 50 40 would him on three judges' scorecards. God damn. Glover got two takedowns for a total control time of 30. Here, let me pull this up so I can show it to you. Glover got... Uh, these these are Jamal's numbers, 232 of 402 of significant strikes. That's absurd. He only got two of 17 takedowns for an 11% success rate. That's Jamal Hill targeting the leg. Jamal Hill, so that's six leg kicks, four. Didn't land any in round three. Didn't land in round four. So he kind of got away from that there. But in terms of the diversity of striking, doesn't do many leg kicks, but he does, by the way, he did a bunch of front kicks in that fight. He did some head kicks in that fight. And he does target the body at least around 20% or so. Now, he is a bit of a headhunter in that sense. But when you're as accurate as he is, uh, I can understand that. And by the way, hello, he 50 44 Glover Teixeira. I think people are comically sleeping on him. Comically. Again, if you believe that Poetan can and will win, because even if he tries to put pressure on Poetan... Uh, he'll have those great leg kicks that will really change up the game for a guy who like likes to work behind the jab at times in Jamal Hill. Fine. Like, no argument, no issue. I'm not going to fight you on it. It's okay. It's okay to have belief in either guy. I don't mind it. But it's this notion that, like, Jamal Hill is speaking out of turn because he believes he can win. Guys, he can beat anyone. He can beat anyone in that fucking weight class. Like, no, there's just no doubt in my mind he can beat anyone in that weight class. Whether he will on fight night, I guess we'll have to see. And, again, there's bigger issues at play. Time off, injury. Uh, how old is he? Uh, how old is old Jamal? Uh, was he 32? Something like that. 31, 32. So, you know, he's this should be his physical prime, uh, or he should have a little bit longer, assuming he can get back pretty quickly. But I've been, like, blown away by people being like, oh, why is he so confident about his chances? Guys, he's a fucking former UFC champion that no one took the belt from him. What do you expect him to be? What do you expect him to be? I don't, I don't, like you expect him to be like sheepish. Some guys are like that. Like, you know, everyone runs the gamut or something. Like you get guys like Yuri who are very, you know, quietly confident. You get guys like Poetan who don't do a whole lot of talking. And then you get guys like Jamal Hill who, you know, are a little bit on the cockier side, but like that's, very normal, very typical behavior for people in this line of work. 
So listen, you can like who you like, pick who you want to pick. It'll be fun. It'll be competitive. I certainly believe that. Uh, but like for the folks being like, oh, Jamal, you know, he doesn't, all he has is boxing and he has no chance of winning. Dude, this is just, this is just ignorant reasoning. It's just very ignorant reasoning. The tape does, matter of factly, does not show that. Um, he is a force to be reckoned with, assuming he can get back from injury at a reasonable time and, and get back to being himself. But like this idea that like, you know, he's like, you know, the odd man outs in this division in terms of what everyone else can do. Uh, I got to tell you, I don't think that's accurate. Oh, good question. Uh, Luke, if Volk were to lose to Ilya, assuming it's not debatable in any way, does he get a rematch? Great question. Or do they just have Ilya fight Max next? Man, what a question. That is a... So you're positing that not only does Taporia win, but how he wins is not debatable. So here's what I'll say. If Max, excuse me, not Max. If Taporia ends up winning in a way where Volk gets like audited a little bit, yes, I could see that. I could see that. Where let's say it's five rounds and Taporia just beats the shit out of him in every round, right? Stops all the takedowns, lights him up with leg kicks, drops him two, three times, you know, something where, like, he's clearly not up to par. Uh, then, yeah, I, I think that there might not be much of a case for a rematch, right, when you really go in and do But, like, the likelihood of that seems very low. Taporia, if he were to win, I'm not saying he couldn't win by decision, but, uh, in fact, he very well could, but you would imagine his likeliest scenarios would be just straight up stopping him with power somewhere inside the distance or winning enough rounds to like, you know, he wins three of the rounds or, you know, he has a 10-8 somewhere that changes the scoring. But like going in there and then like like Volk doesn't have a chance or doesn't put up any kind of resistance over the 25 minutes seems very hard to square. And so what I would say is, you know, he's had a lot of rematches, right? Um, well, more recently, I should say that he's had a lot of... Yeah, no, he's had a lot of rematches. He had three fights with Max. He's now had two with Islam. Could you do an immediate rematch? I mean, the thing is this. This is the problem. If you if you don't do the rematch, and so Volk's looking for another fight, does he go to 155? Maybe. If he decides to stay, who does he fight? Um... I guess you could have him like fight Ortega. I guess you could have him fight someone else in the featherweight ring. I mean, Arnold Allen or something. And then Taporia could fight Max. But I guess I'm trying to point out there could be a way where who they would have to fight in a scenario like that might change what the UFC prefers to do. If it ends up being that a rematch is still the most lucrative thing, even if it's not debatable, they'll probably just do that. If it ends up being where, like, you know, they'd rather just have Volk fight. Taporia twice, then fight Taporia once, then Arnold Allen. They'll just do that. Um, I guess. I guess my point being is the only way that there isn't considerations about rematches is not even if Taporia knocks him out. It, it wouldn't be that he would have to. He would have to make him look like Volk made Korean Zombie look or something, right? Where it's just like, dude, what the fuck was the point of this? You know, maybe not quite that bad, but because uh, he stopped him too, but something like that. Where it's like, I don't even, I don't, like, 
Do you remember before Spence Crawford, we were like, oh man, you know, there's a mutually reinforcing clause. We're going to get a second one. And it looks like we're going to get a second one. I don't know when and I don't know at what weight. But we are going to get a second one. But Bud beat him so bad. We're like, what the fuck is the point of a second? Like, what on earth? Why would you need a second one? The guy just got housed. And of course, the argument there is always going to be the 147 versus 154 kind of consideration. But, you know, on that night, Bud made it look so bad that you just couldn't even imagine a need for a second Spence fight. Um, But, you know, the business of boxing has other ideas. It would have to be in something like that. You know, we don't have rematch clauses in MMA, so. Good question. Uh, you sometimes reference Dr. Mike Isratel, Derek from More Plates, More Dates, and Dr. Lane Norton. Have you ever considered reaching out to try to collaborate with any of them? Sure. Your audience in the know would love it, and I'm sure the ones not aware would benefit and appreciate it. I just don't know how much an MMA audience wants to hear about like weightlifting or hypertrophy or intermittent fasting or you know, non-nutritive sweeteners. I just don't know what kind of market there is for that among you guys. So it's hard for me to really kind of get behind it as a topic to put on this channel. But like, do I spend my time consuming their work? I absolutely do. I was having a debate with my wife about this, uh, about Dr. Mike Isratel's work on, not his work in particular, but he had recently done some uh, discussion about posture. And it turns out that the things that most affect your posture are simply genetics. Like this idea that like, having muscle imbalance up front relative to the back rounds you forward is simply not true. Um, and she was arguing with me about that. I'm like, well, I think I have a bit of a trump card here that I'm about to use. So, so I did. So if you guys want to hear from people like this, and by the way, Lane and I follow each other on uh, Instagram. Um, he gave me, uh, I, I don't use it right now, but I've used it for a long time, the Carbon app, which is his app. He gave me a lifetime subscription to it. Shouts to Lane Norton. He's the man. Um, I love what he does in terms of, you know, um, randomized control trials um, for non-nutritive sweeteners, for fasting, for hypertrophy, for any kind of that stuff. He's really, these guys who bring an academic science background mixed with um, gym application. Like, these are guys that have been in the gym. Dude, Dr. Mike Isratel... I think, what did I read? He had an overhead press of 275 for something like 8 reps. Or maybe even more than that. Maybe even like 10 reps. Guys, do you know how fucking strong you have to be (laughs) to have a standing overhead press uh, with like 8 to 10 reps of 275? You got to be strong as shit to do something. I couldn't do that. I'm not on my best day could I do that. For reps, I mean, I th- I probably my best day I could have pushed 275, but for like eight to ten reps, no chance. No chance. I think I can find that as a matter of fact, dude. He had a sick ability. Uh, let's see. Hold on, you got to see this shit because he's so fucking strong. Overhead press. Let's see, let's see. Uh, I'd have to find it, but yeah, check that out. All right, here we go. Back to the questions from from uh, this gentleman here who is a member. Thank you, sir. 
Uh, hey, Luke, with Jerron Ennis being promoted as the IBF welterweight champion and with Spence and Crawford being busy, are there any potential matchups within the division that you'd be interested in? The biggest fight outside of those two names seems to be a unification with Staniosis. Staniosis would be a good one. Um, Thurman, I think, would be an interesting one. But, you know, obviously with Spence and Crawford gone, that takes away the biggest fights that you really have at that point. Um, I have to look at the rankings and see who's who's there and who's not. But, yeah, those would be the two biggest ones. Ooh, good question. Luke, besides a weaponized pace, what other advantages does Colby have against Leon? Besides a weaponized pace. Well, he's going to have overall better wrestling, better scrambling, probably, and a better ability um, to chain things together, right? Like, Colby is very sticky, right? Like, once he gets to a leg ride and then halfway on the back, he's very, very hard to get off. He's very, very hard to like remove, remove him. Right? He'll hit that. He'll hit that leg ride. He'll put the hook in. He'll lift it, and then he'll start working from the back. And he doesn't really ever go super hard for the submission. He just kind of keeps your hands busy, and then does busy work on top. Like it's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not just the pace of it. It's the skill required to affirm your base there in a disadvantageous position where he has firm control, the ability to land shots, not significant shots, but a lot of uncontested shots, and to chain different kinds of offense together between shots and submissions just to put you on the defensive end. Like that, To me, like when I think about like what Colby really does well, people talk about weaponizing the pace. That's part of it. But the other one is he just merely keeps you occupied. He keeps you occupied. The amount of work that he does, the amount of position, con- positional control he achieves and for how long he achieves it, he makes you work. Um, and so you're always defensively occupied, either with the, the choke or whatever. Um, these are things that he's going to really have to contend with, is to what extent can he create separation? We, I've talked about this for years. It is not just one thing to stuff the takedown of a very good wrestler. You have to, on top of it, create separation. Because if you just stuff it and then they re-engage and then shove you against the fence, what good is what you've done? you're still there you may not be on your back but you are not free to do offense you are not you are still working defensively on the terms they have set Um, to me these are the biggest things he has to overcome he has to find a way to create separation he has to find a way to limit the chaining of attacks he has to find a way uh, to limit Colby's ability to create um, these sort of like stationed control positions from which he can easily achieve and which he can then stay for a long time. Locked hands. You're going to have to find a way to break locked hands. He likes to get locked hands and then work from behind a tight waist. Like These are things that, that I think Leon, having fought Kamaru twice, is well suited to do. But to me, it's it's not just that everything comes quickly after the other. Uh, although that's part of it. Clearly, that's part of it. Um, it's that he has these... He has a game situated on merely occupying you like go back to the Robbie Lawler fight like Robbie you know if you look at numerically Robbie took a bunch of punches and there was an insane amount of control time and whatnot but he didn't like beat the shit out of Robbie Robbie just couldn't do anything except get rained on and I'm not even sure Robbie was tired I mean this is the point I'm trying to talk about like I'm sure he got tired a little bit right but he wasn't like exhausted he just couldn't all you know 
he couldn't um, find a way to get out of the spider web. Once, once the flow starts of what he's doing, it's very hard to escape it. The, the undertow pulls you. He's good at that. Kumaru was good at stopping that because Kumaru could basically stop him in the wrestling or create separation. So they were forced to exchange on the feet a little bit more. Uh, Leon's going to have a similar task. Leon's going to have a similar I mean, go look at the Jorge Masvidal fight with Colby. What, what do you notice? Now, he did get tired because there was weaponized pace. But again, it's, it's, it's this ability to merely occupy you. But the, the Lawler fight to me is more instructive because Lawler, you know, was worn down, but he wasn't like exhausted. He wasn't barely hanging on. He just couldn't get out from under him. Uh, or I should say he was underneath and he couldn't get out from under where he was. And that's a testament to the pace and the testament to the control and then how he marries that with these like position stations from which to do work. He's very, very good at that. Okay, good question. Uh, could you please rate current UFC champs on the possibility of becoming a double champ. Ooh. Who has more chances? Who has almost zero chances? So let's go through it. Pantoja. Very unlikely, if for no other reason than there is parity at 125. And I don't think the UFC is going to be trying to give him a shot at 135. So you can cr cross him off. Sean O'Malley is an interesting one. Because I do think he's a budding star. That might change the equation, but... Um, I don't like really his chances to beat a solid 145-er. Uh, also, you know, 135 is a remarkably, remarkably deep division. Taporia slash Volk at 155 is a little bit more interesting. We've seen Volk try, but I don't think anyone's going to beat Islam, including Taporia. Islam's an interesting one. Islam, I don't know if he would beat um, Leon, but I... And I didn't want to see it before. I'd, I'd be a little bit more curious about that one. I'd give him a little bit of a maybe. Leon, I don't think he's going to get a shot at 185. And even if he does, I don't I don't necessarily like his chances there. So probably not. Although there's possible. 185 to 205. Well, um, I mean, I guess one, DDP could go to 205. But that just seems so unlikely. I don't, I don't really think so. Um, and then, or, you know, even Sean. Sean to 205. And it's like... You know, Sean's probably still not a great, or I should say, Poetan is probably still not a great matchup for Sean. And Poetan going to uh, heavyweight is a little interesting. I, I know there's some, I mean, again, in a world where Tom Aspinall is champion, I don't think Poetan's got much of a shot, but not the craziest thing in the world. Uh, and then on the women's side, Zhang Wiley going to 125 is possible. Uh, but I, I just think that they have unfinished business, obviously, with Grosso and Shevchenko. Winner there could go to 135. That that one seems to me probably the most doable. So there's a couple of spots where it could actually happen, both in terms of what the UFC wants and their ability to actually win. But it's pretty limited, man. It's pretty limited. Okay. Uh, Luke, you often emphasize how important film is to a fighter's development and success. As a boxer myself, I find studying tape of pro fighters... Excuse me one second. Pardon me. As a boxer myself, I find myself studying tape of pro fighters and tape of my own quite often to break it down. How important do you deem film study to a fighter's success? Thanks for the show, as always. Well, listen... 
There's a lot of fighters you can talk to who say that they never use it and they feel fine. I understand that. Um, there are situations where fighters look at a little bit of tape and then their coaches look at a bunch so that they don't get like in their own head about what this other person might do. I've seen scenarios like that. Ah, damn, give me a second. Ooh, uh, my nose. Uh, but what I would say is, I personally believe it's the most underrated and one of the one of the most useful tools available to any fighter and any coach. I cannot tell you how much I have learned just from watching tape. Like I've learned, a, I mean, I've learned an enormous amount from the actual training. I've learned some from interviews. I've learned some from practical application. Uh, I have learned an absolute metric shit ton from tape. Tape is so important for any number of reasons, in part because it's quite literally reviewable, right? I mean, I can actually spend hours going back and looking at the same technique over and over and over and over again, which makes it a little bit, even if you're drilling the technique, there's usually a limit on gym time, partner's willingness, how much time you have for that. So on that level alone, it, like, like this, the amount of it you can do and the specificity of what you can do is unlike basically anything else, including the training environment itself. But more to the point, and this is what I think folks don't understand, tape will reveal certain truths that your articulation of what you do will not. Fighters might believe certain things about what they do or what their opponent does that the tape will not simply show. Um, the tape is much more an indication of the truth of how things actually work out in the real world. And it is much more revelatory and useful as a, as a tool for what will happen next time than just about anything else you can do. These, Especially, like, this is what we mean when we talk about these champions who have these large amounts of tape. Dude, when you start having large amounts of tape, guys don't know what... I mean, sorry. Um, it's very, very difficult for fighters to fend off um, challengers in that way. It's just extremely difficult. What does that tell you about its value? You not only learn about yourself and what you can see, you also learn, if you're measuring your own, you're learning about what champions do in repetition in the real world over time. What decisions they make, why they make them, everything from balance to shot selection to overall tactical approach to overall strategic approach to round-by-round -round changes to footwork to gas to posture to to uh, everything, everything is finally put together on tape and you can review it over and over and over and over and over again, very simply. It is an enormously, enormously useful tool. It is not true that you can learn how to fight just watching tape, not true. It is very true that you can learn how to get really good at fighting by training and then complementing it from watching tape and someone's going to say oh yeah you can get it from just from training you're going to get there much faster watching tape much faster much faster like john jones to my understanding every time i've spoken to one of his coaches have told me he watches a shit ton of tape guys is it any coincidence he's as good as he is he understands not only himself he understands what his opponents do in ways that even they don't fully inventory guys when you experience something in the real world you may might remember key details and some of those key details sometimes other people will miss even if it's on tape but the opposite is often true as well that you're not fully appreciative of some of these oh my kid's gonna come home hang on you're not fully appreciative of some of these other details that do happen 
that can have an extraordinary impact on the outcome or the complexion of the fight or everything else. There we go. Hang on now. Hang on now. Very, very different. Very unusual uh, in terms of what tape can provide. So you can't just look at fight film and be like, oh, I know how to fight now. It doesn't work that way. Uh, But what you can do is the amount of insight you can derive from what the excellence or mistakes of your peers slash contemporary slash the greats offer you is this treasure trove of wisdom, best practices, do's and don'ts, refined details, everything that can't really be taught even over the course of a class through a month. You could show up to some guy's class for a month and not get those. Of course, you can sometimes too, but it's just packed into there. So just in terms of scouting, it's enormously useful. In terms of educating yourself, like ideas you never had about something. Oh my God, I never thought you could parry that way. I never thought to hold my hands in this position. I never thought to 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 angle in that way. I never thought you could exit on a combo that way. Then you watch someone do it and you're like, oh my God, I had never even considered it. My coach never even told me about it, but the tape was there. The tape is this enormous library of information to pull and some of it will be useful some of it will be not but the vast majority of it is typically quite useful you will learn about and if you watch a lot of tape over time people's tendencies through the course of their career what guys were trying to do at certain times this is what boxers did in the 80s this is how footwork changed in the 90s this is how clinching looked different in the 2020s for mma or whatever you can see patterns emerge and thought emerge. And so if you're a really high-level guy, you can see like what might be next and what advantages are people having from the game that they're using that's being leveraged. Like If you didn't understand what Habib was doing, but you had access to his library, you could figure him out. Not that you could stop it, but you would have a really clear understanding of like what he does, what matters. Like BJJ Scout, you guys remember BJJ Scout? He did a Demi and Maya passing study. It was only because of tape that he was able to go back and then piece everything together and then create this map. And on the map, it was like, okay, if he gets to a tripod here, then he does X, Y, and Z. If he doesn't, then he does A, B, and C. If he gets to the halfway point, then he does this. And then he has all of this map. So you can find out exactly what guys are looking for, how they're looking for it, what the developmental stages of it are, And not ones that are easily taught in class. Like, oh, I went from guard to half guard to side to mount to back. The standard ones everyone knows. We're talking about a little bit of a different one. Modified stuff just for MMA. And he was able to put together this entire map. This is only only a function of having access to the footage. If you didn't have the footage and you had to just go on memory, you wouldn't be able to do it very well. Or you'd have to go and talk and train with Maya specifically. But having the access to the footage is a complete and utter game changer in every way cannot I mean the best thing you can do as a fan or a budding analyst or whatever tape study tape study tape study I watch tape every day every day sometimes I pick up on a lot sometimes I spend an hour and I pick up nothing doesn't matter doesn't matter watch fucking tape and the guys who don't success is a function of many ingredients but the guys who don't watch tape to me, in general, are less thoughtful. Uh, their coaches are less thoughtful. And in general, though not totally, typically have a lot less success. I have found that the ones at the very top either watch some tape, their coaches watch a lot of tape, or they themselves watch a lot of tape. 
I don't think that's in any way accidental. I mean, could you imagine trying to have an NFL team and you don't watch tape? A, 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 a soccer club, a football team, and you don't watch tape, how the fuck would you scout your opponent? It's, 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 it's a window into the truth that only competition provides. Here we go. Could Diego Lopez be a future star in the making? I'm getting Charles Oliveira vibes. Well, Charles Oliveira is a very special case, but I think what I would say is He's got a style that's impossible to dislike, right? It's impossible to dislike Diego Lopez's style. Can't be done. Cannot be done. Um, he has a great guard. He's active. He has good takedown defense. But more to the point, I could go piece by piece. He looks for offense everywhere, in every position, at every moment of a fight, in every round. What else are you looking for if you're an MMA fan? What are you looking for? Isn't that exactly what you want? You want a guy that does that? Well, he's your guy. He's your huckleberry. People love that. People love guys who have offense everywhere. To your point, in that sense, the comp- the, comp- the, the comparison's good. Charles Oliveira also has offense everywhere. Now, they have different games um, they're different people, and also Oliveira is much more proven. But I, I, I sort of get what you're saying here. I would slow down the comparison given the the um, heights to which Oliveira has extended his his success. But yeah, it, dude, you don't have to speak a lick of fucking English for the North American pay per view buying market. If you have a style like Diego Lopez does, and you're as good as he is, people will gravitate to you immediately immediately yes I, I i would very much consider him future star i don't know but somebody to pay attention to in 2024 as a potential breakout fighter yeah he's he's definitely got to be on your list right so this is an interesting question luke do you foresee colby finding much success if any on the feet versus leon or do you feel his only realistic path to winning is through the takedown? How do you feel Leon's takedown defense will fare versus a wrestler like Kobe? It's less about ability for me. Leon is much more skilled on the feet. And it's more about to what extent is Leon um, too defensive. And Colby not necessarily super, super refined in the striking department, but again, just doing more work, putting more pressure, making... Leon's second guess, making Leon wait longer before he throws, overall lowering his volume. Like One of the things you'll see from guys who are really, really good, Volk is like this, but he's hardly alone, is that you'll see that um, the, the, his, the guys he goes up against, their numbers tend to decline from their baseline. So whatever the average is for that guy, it will be less than whenever they fight Volk because he has this suppressive effect. Colby is very similar in that regard. Do you, do you think that might be the case? Because if that's the case, well, then you're talking about something a little bit different where it's not so much a question of who's got greater skill it, in terms of like pure striking ability. It's a question of who can occupy the other's time more effectively, which we spoke about earlier. That's what I would say. I mean, do I think Leon's a better striker than Colby? I don't think there's really much doubt. Uh, But in MMA, if you can mix up the threats and then occupy someone to make them think that they don't have the freedom to throw in the way that they ordinarily do, then yeah. But I would also counter that by saying 
the takedown defense that Leon showed, especially in the third Kamaru fight, was extremely impressive. And, you know, if you had shown me the first fight between him and Kamaru, and then the second fight between he and Kamaru, I'd be like, well, Colby's got a good chance. But then after the third fight, I was like, I don't know if he's got a good chance. Like, Leon really hit his stride in terms of understanding what um, his assignments were in takedown defense, how to nullify, how to create separation, all of that stuff. Dude, he did a phenomenal job of that, and I think he leveled up through that rivalry big time. That's what happens to the best fighters. They'll find some kind of rival, and it will test them. It will test them. But then the really good ones rise to the occasion and uh and also you know Kamara did that against previous fighters right but in the case of Leon that rivalry with Kamaru elevated him it turned him into something different and that's the problem that I think Colby's got Colby's got some real things you should worry about but the 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 level of detail and success from the takedown defense let me pull up that I want to see the numbers on this one from the third fight Leon Edwards fight metric let's see what we got from that third fight yeah man he was extremely impressive to me um they credit Kamaru with four takedowns he got five in the second fight but he had a control time of just five minutes over the course so let's see these numbers I'll show them to you here Takedowns, over two in the first round, one for one with 45 seconds, hardly any time. One for two in round three with about a minute, not a whole lot. Because remember, some of this is, control time is not just time on top, it's time pressed against the fence. So not a lot of time underneath. One or four there, 51 seconds. And he got a little bit more in this round. Um, and the, he did a little bit more strike. No, sorry, what am I doing? I'm looking at Leon on top, yes. Sorry. So Kamara got one of one here, zero of two, one of two. As I mentioned, yeah, this was all right. And then he... But look at Leon's numbers. He had numerically more in the fifth, nearly double in the fourth, uh, nearly double in the third. It was very even in the second round in that sense. Uh, and then the first, Leon got more, and the judges had it 48, 46, 48, 46, 47, 47. <laughs> Pardon me. Jesus. Um, so, yeah, getting back to the question, uh, how do you feel Leon's takedown defense will fare versus a wrestler like Colby? I don't want to sit here and say that Colby's not going to get a takedown. I suspect Colby will get takedowns. Based on what we saw from Leon in that third fight, he's going to have a hard time holding him down. I believe. I believe. Plus, also, Colby's 36, hasn't fought in a while. Like, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go. All right. Let's get to these questions here. Uh, Luke, can you explain to a casual fan like myself what Jamal Hill does well? Oh, it, okay. Well, there we go. We got back to this one earlier. I understand he has punching power, that's true, and his KOs and his record, but besides that, nothing else stands out to me. Oh, guys! Now, I know you're asking in earnest, so I'm not going to kill you. Uh, and quote, I struggle to see how he would do well against Alex Pereira. Well, again, I'm not going to go over the whole point again. I'm not going to belabor. I'm not going to do a big answer here. I refer you to what I said earlier. Guys, guys, I think that what's going happening is that people really like Alex Pereira, which, no problem. And Jamal's got a bit of a rough-around-the-edges personality. I think that that's probably part of it, and I can understand that if you know he rubs you the wrong way or whatever. It doesn't bother me, but you know your mileage may vary. And I get that earlier in his career, he had a bit more of a defined, narrowed skill set. But even in that defined, narrow skill set, he was very dangerous. And now it is expanding 
in in even more dangerous ways. I I um I think that's a very competitive fight. I think it's a very competitive fight, and I think a lot of folks are going to be surprised when it is. Oh God, I have to answer this. Did you guys see this fucking goober from Oklahoma? Listen to this. Look, what'd you think about Senator Mark Wayne Mullinelli challenging Teamsters President Sean O'Brien to an MMA fight, but then going on a publicity tour to justify his challenge by citing Andrew Jackson's duels and the caning of Charles Sumner as historical precedence? Did you guys see this fucking goober? Okay, so first of all, do you guys know who Mark Wayne Mullen is? Mark Wayne Mullen was, uh, he's a Republican, but he was a, con- I had him on my radio show when I was on Sirius XM. He... Uh, was a congressman from Oklahoma and fought three times in MMA. He was the guy that pulled Mark Ratner and some other Zufa folks into Congress to testify at hearings before him because he was the one that introduced the Ali Act to MMA. Uh, you know, the, 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 the extension, uh, essentially. Now, it didn't get anywhere, although it did have a bunch of signatories. Uh, ultimately, it got killed when it had to get... Um, reintroduced in committee and then there was another election and he went from being a congressman two-year term to a senator six-year term also just a much more prestigious role inside the american government the senator is much more powerful than a uh, congressman typically and you thought to yourself okay well all right he didn't have a lot of success getting the aliak going uh, as a congressman but i mean his power has only increased since then he has not reintroduced it. And in fact, the folks who were trying to get that passed, the same folks who are involved in the fighter lawsuit, uh, MMAFA, um, Vinicius Queiroz, Carlos Newton, um, Nate Quarry, Randy Couture, all these folks. They, I had them all on my radio show every time they came through D.C. Uh, I had Mark Wayne Mullen on my show when he came through D.C. When he, when he grilled Mark Ratner. You guys can go and find this. You can find the video of him absolutely like grilling Mark Ratner but something has changed where even though he obviously still has this MMA background you can see his ears are a little messed up you know he just doesn't want to reintroduce the legislation I don't know why he hasn't commented on it and I know what folks are saying like you know the G- their their argument is that the Republican Party doesn't want to challenge corporate power in this way and I, I would say what he, he did not too long ago, like unless he had like a dramatic worldview switch, I don't really buy that. I don't know why he's not doing it. I mean, I, I guess he's got other priorities, including wanting to fist fight the Teamsters president. Did you guys fucking see this? Like one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen in my life, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, justifying 19th century duels to justify, you know, completely unprofessional behavior in the floor or or I should say in a hearing for the Senate, you know, it's just, you know, remarkable brainworms that this guy has. Uh and it's really unfortunate because um his advocacy previously was I think really well taken and it was, you know, he was a Republican but he was able to get people from this is true, you can look at the signatories. He got people from both sides of the aisle to sign on to the legislation to 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 sponsor and co-sponsor it and he just has given it all up and i don't really know what the fucking story is there and it's insanely disappointing because if you can't count on a former mma fighter who has spoken openly about i mean when i had him on my show i asked him like why it mattered to him and he was saying he told me he was like 
I've seen what promoters do to fighters up close. Like, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. He saw what it was like to be on the other end and have to deal with, like, shithouse, shady promoter. I mean, he fought in Oklahoma. Like, God only knows what, what shit he saw. Now, he only fought three times. He didn't have, like, a long, decorated record. He was more, you know, hobbyist than anything else. But still, like, these are very, you know, this is a very important experience that he had, and then he's not building on it. And now he wants to kind of have this MMA background to, like, challenge other, like, I'm ge- I'm going to guess, entities that he sees as diametrically opposed to whatever his political leanings might be. I'm guessing. I don't know. But it's deeply disappointing, man. Deeply disappointing. You thought we... Because there's other MMA fighters in Congress. Um, the woman from Kansas, I forget her name. She fought in Invicta. Ah, what was her name? Um, I forget. But she's not very powerful. She's not. She doesn't have a ton of like cachet. She's important for her constituency, but not a big name. Dude, Mark Wayne Mullen is a much bigger name now. He went, he, he has, he's really leveled up politically and then dropped this uh, along the way. And if, and if a former MMA fighter can't carry this legislation and sponsor it and reintroduce it, you just begin to wonder who can. Um, I really don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. There you go. All right. Um, if you've got any donations in, we'll take a look at those now. If not, no problem. Thanks for being here. Okay. Let's get to these. Uh, Brendan says, how do you differentiate, quote, effective grappling, end quote, that lacks substantive sub-threats, ground and pound from defense is your own reward from a scoring perspective? That's a great question. I'll tell you the answer to it. Uh, Number one, if I'm just laying in your guard, I don't consider that very effective grappling. Right? I'm not doing much. If you keep your guard closed, you're not. You know what? Let me leave your question up because I don't want to take it away. That's not very effective, right? But if I'm constantly making you work, where everything I'm doing, I'm denying you ability to post on a hand, post on an elbow, I'm making you pick your poison between giving up mount or back, and I can't quite get to the submission, I can't, you're squirmy, I can't quite get to the ground and pound, but you are doing nothing but defensively answering me, I consider that effective grappling. But more to the point, let's add a little bit of uh, nuance to it. If I'm doing all of that or much of that and you're carrying my weight and I'm able to get asymmetrical positions like the back, right? Where the back, you have almost no offense from the back. I mean, you can flip and stuff like that, but in general, you don't, you know, this is not effective punching. You can't headbutt backwards. There's nothing really very effective about it. That's effective grappling to me. And in MMA, um, you might get a judge who can like see over the course of three rounds that like wow that 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 grappling is really wearing on him. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I'm gonna award that in the way I judge. You might get some of that, but I have found that if I can make you work, and uh, you have to answer me from a grappling standpoint, like I'm putting you in jeopardy, then you're getting yourself out. Then I'm putting you in jeopardy, then you're getting yourself out. I'm putting you in jeopardy, so to speak. I'm upping the ante, and you're having to follow me, and you can't really get anything going. And people will be like, oh, he didn't get a sub or he didn't get, you know, any ground and pound going. It's like, I'm not here to say that um, those wouldn't be better. That's not my argument. My argument is not that those are clearly better things. They are clearly better things that should be weighed more. My point is, those aren't the only things that should be weighed. Sometimes fights are not exciting. Sometimes fights are close. 
and sometimes fights are not exciting and close in the grappling context. This idea that like we only really matters if I if I get to the very I mean the very end of a grappling sequence is the submission. The the idea that like on the, at least on the submission level I have to get it all the way to that part before any of it really matters is just inherently nonsensical to me. And I think to anybody who's trained that's probably the case too. Like the only thing that mattered was that. That's not really true. If I pass your guard and you have to worry about what that means, I have changed the game for you. And if not a whole lot else happened, but that happened, that fucking matters to me. That matters to me. Um, but it doesn't matter to a lot of folks because it's like, well, he didn't do anything with it. Bullshit, he didn't do anything with it. Again, that doesn't counteract getting lit up on the feet for three minutes before that. That's not the argument. But if uh, most of the round is grappling contested and you have to answer me just to stay level or compete, I get that round. I get that round. My wife is texting me. Yeah, please text me more during my podcast. Um, oh, here we go. There we go. All right. How are strike counts tallied on live broadcast? You don't ever want to look at the... Oh, sorry. Put it up here. Thank you. I'm assuming it's pronounced Jiva. Thank you, Jiva. The numbers on the live broadcasts are always very conditional. I've talked, dude. Fight Metric is based out of Washington D.C. They're based here. Um, their their uh, their head of uh, pr- um, the company, Rami. I've known him for almost fifteen years. Uh, um, he's a great guy. I love Rami a lot. He's he's an awesome guy. Um, so I've gotten a chance to talk to them about their methodology and everything about it. Um, but one thing that they are very clear about is what you see on the screen during a fight, you, I, I would strongly caution you uh, in terms of taking that seriously. Um, you want to really make sure you wait until the fight is over to get the full tally. Unfor- There's not really a better answer for that, unfortunately. All right, from Matt, who's a member, what's your Wawa go-to? Boy, I haven't been to Wawa in a while. Um, let me think about that. My Wawa go-to. My Wawa go-to. Okay, I would probably... Man, I haven't had Wawa. Again, I haven't had Wawa in some time. Um, I think that they do a meatball sub, if memory serves. Right? They do a meatball sub. I think that's right. Probably get one of those. I like to get hot peppers on it. But I won't get too more crazy than that. I mean, it's a fucking gas station. Like, let's call, all calm down here a little bit. I love Wawa as much as the next guy, but uh, I'll, I'd probably have that meatball sub. Uh, okay, from Captain V, who's a member. Luke, I have some bad. I I have some bad dates and some great dates lately. What's the worst date you've ever had? Please share all the details. What is the worst date I've ever had? I walked out on a date once. That's true. Um, it was a blind date I got set up on. I was like, yeah, this is not. She's talking to me about her cats. I was like, yeah, I'm out. Um, I had one. I think I've told a story before. I had one where I picked this girl up. This was a long time ago. And um, I don't know why she said yes to the date. I don't know what the fuck. I mean, if you don't want to go, fucking, we don't have to go. You know, I'm a grown man. Like, you can say no. I picked her up, and the first thing she says when she gets in the car was, uh, she was like, yeah, I have to be back in an hour. Um, what, what, not even, like, not even, like, like, we had to be back at that place. Like we could only be, we could only eat. And I had like dinner reservations, like in like a nice place. We could, we could only be there for like 
30 minutes because how, how much time it took to get there and back and like, she knew where we were going so i was i almost said to her like get the fuck out i mean i've never had a disaster meltdown where it's like someone chucked a drink in my face or anything like that uh, but i did walk out on one on this woman who was absolutely awful <laughs> Uh, which you know, I wouldn't do that again, but you know, I was, I was in a different place in my life. And then, uh, I did have the one as soon as she got in the car being like, yeah, can we be back in an hour? I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to lose my mind here, lady. But, um, if you don't want to go, just fucking say you don't want to go. All right. Joshua writes with the Saudis being able to have Frank and Eddie in the same press conference, is it possible that a future UF Saudi card featured Jones and Francis? I mean, if anyone can do it, I suppose it's them. I would still guess, in all likelihood, probably not. Um, but, to your point, if they can get rival UK promoters, basically, um, to work together, then yeah. then there's uh, th- If anyone can do it, it is them. Whether they can do it. All right, Josh says, Any advice for someone learning a new language that can't roll their R's for shit? Also, the Martyr Made podcast has a great series on Israel-Palestine. I've not heard that podcast. Any advice for someone learning a new language that can't roll their R's for shit? You know what's kind of funny is my brother-in-law obviously speaks fluent Spanish and he can't roll his R's. Um, so he can't say, for example, like what's the word car in Spanish? Como se dice car in Spanish? It's it's two R's. It's C A R R O. It's carro, carro, right? Um, he can't say it. He, he kind of like flicks his tongue. He's more like carro, carro, but he can't say carro. That's how you say it. Or, um, you know, they for example here in DC, DC is famous for its Salvadorian food. Tons of Salvadorians here. They make something called the pupusa. And if you get it with pork, it's called revueltas. Re, re. I don't know how to teach someone how to do that, actually. I'm trying to teach my daughter. It's, and it's, she's, her Spanish is excellent, but she can't really do it all that well either. I don't, I don't know if I have, I mean, dude, just, it's Chewbacca. Just do your own Chewbacca impression. <laughs> like, I don't know how to teach someone how to do that. I've, I've, I have struggled trying to teach my daughter how to do it as well, but I have heard native fluent Spanish speakers who cannot do it. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you. I apologize. Welchie writes, if in the unlikely event the UFC and PFL were to co-promote a Jones and Ngannou fight, how would the revenue split need to play out for both companies? 50-50? Oh, yeah, no. Guys, co-promotion, great question. Co-promotion doesn't mean 50-50. Uh-uh. It's not, I don't know why people think that. Like, People are like, oh, well, the UFC could bring all of this attention and, and PFL couldn't. Guys, 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 calm down. I'm going to go back to it. We've already seen a version of it this time. Tank and Ryan. Tank and Ryan was technically a PBC Golden Boy crossover event featuring different distributors, in this case, Showtime and DAZN. How much say over the broadcast did Golden Boy get? Zero. How much say over the broadcast did DAZN get? Zero. That was 100%, 100% a Showtime PBC production. DAZN had no role. You didn't see any DAZN commentators. You didn't see any DAZN ringside reporters. Nothing. Nothing. But they were technically co-promoters, and I'm sure they did something on the back end, you know, not, not a whole lot, but they did something. And that's in a case 
where they had Ryan Garcia, right? You know, Ryan Garcia was not as pop. Well, I mean, I guess you could argue now Tank is more popular. Before it was somewhat un- unsettled. But, you know, Ryan was a very, very popular guy, right? DAZN got nothing. Dude, to me, if the PFL and the UFC were to co-promote, it would look indistinguishable almost probably from a regular UFC pay-per-view. They would wear UFC gloves. It would be the UFC commentators. When people say the PFL doesn't have anything to offer in terms of how that event would go, yeah, I believe that. Or at least not much anyway. I believe that. I completely, totally believe that. And we already have precedence for situations when there's an imbalance between the promoters in terms of what value they can provide and who's got the leverage. One just takes over. We literally, all, we, we, we just saw it this past year. So to me, it's not a question of like, well, would it, would it be in the smart cage <laughs> or would it be in the octagon? It would be in the fucking octagon. Uh, would it be, you know, would there be uh, Randy Couture in the broadcast? Randy Couture ain't going to be on the broadcast. Neither is Kenny Florian. I love those guys, but they're not going to be. It's going to be those guys. And again, we're imagining a role where it happens, but which it may never. But if it were, it would look probably almost indistinguishable from a regular UFC broadcast. Now, how they would handle the title being on the line, I don't know. That would have to be worked out. That part might get a little bit interesting. But in terms of like your experience as a consumer, it would be UFC 400 or whatever number it would be, UFC 320, whatever. That, like the idea that this would be, you know, the PFL presents or some shit. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. They're only invited to the party because of Francis. And I get that completely. This would be, the split would be, you know, not 50-50. Not even close. Not even close. Now, in terms of like how much money went to the fighters... You know, whatever that version was, that split might look a little bit different. I mean, that would be closer to 50-50, right? Like, so we went before, Spence Crawford, it made uh, $55 million on pay-per-view, and it made $20 million at the gate for $75 million. How was it split? It was split, it was split 25 to Bud, 25 to Errol, 25 to everyone else, right? You might see something like that, where the fighters themselves take home a you know reasonably commensurate amount of money, and then whatever is left is divided between UFC and PFL, whatever. And then of that, the UFC would take the enormous lion's share, of course, of course. I mean, this is what I mean. It's like, oh, they would they would boost the popularity of the PFL, dude. You may not even hear the words PFL on that broadcast. I mean, it's 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 even possible you would not even hear that, not even know. You know, this idea that this would be like some PFL. Like, you know, PFL sitting up there. Like, this is like Nixon goes to China or something. Like, no. That's, <laughs> that's so not what this would be. Uh, this is a lot of fever dreams about, like, PFL earning things that it didn't earn. Dude, they would take a fucking backseat. And they would deserve to take a backseat. They wouldn't, they should not be on par with UFC. They can't offer what the UFC can offer, quite clearly. So, yeah, it would look much more like that. Uh, get a chance to watch a separation. Yes, I did. You said you were, were watching something in Farsi on MK demanding flick, but try the white ribbon. I've not seen the white ribbon. So I saw a separation. Uh, I did. I rented it on voodoo. I rented it on voodoo. V U D U. Um, it is, it is, it is superb. It is absolutely superb. The writing is superb. Um, the acting is superb. It's it, it it brought back a lot of memories. My best friend in the world is Persian, 
and his parents are they were they were um, so his parents were something called Baha'i. Um, I guess the Baha'i religion actually has its home in Israel, but they're not they're not part of the Abrahamic religions. But if you don't know anything about the Baha'i faith, they're completely peaceniks. Like they're they they are avidly anti-war. They're very peaceful people. They're his his family could not have been more delightful. And you can imagine during the Islamic Revolution of 1979, his family lost everything. In fact, that's how they ended up in the United States. The Islamic uh, regime took over. <clears throat> My understanding is they burned all of his property, his family's property, and gave them 24 hours to leave Iran, which they did. And uh, they've never been back, unfortunately for them, um, which is quite sad. But I guess, you know, it worked out for me that I found this great friend. But um, they, his parents barely spoke English. Like when we would go to his house after high school classes, you know, they would like I would I would call him. I'm going to say his name is not Steve, but I'm going to call him Steve. I would call his house and his mom would answer and I'd be like, hey, um, hey, can I speak to Steve? And she would go, um, Steve is uh, under the shower, under the shower, because that's how they would literally translate Farsi into English. I mean, that's the level of English we're talking about. And they would, it was just all these people and they had a huge family and they were always talking Farsi to each other. And um, Farsi has got a really unusual kind of uh, sound to it. It's very different than Arabic. But anyway, that was just a personal anecdote. But the movie itself is so fantastically brilliant. Now, people were saying it was like this tour de force. I didn't quite get that from it, but I don't have any complaints at all. The actors are incredible, but more to the point, the the writing is insane and the directing is insane, and I won't spoil it for you, but there's a way that every scene is basically shot um, that focuses in on the character in a way that they kind of like eschew the rest of what is happening there. It's a masterstroke of filmmaking, you know. It's uh, it's just a, it's just an enormously well done, well made movie. Um, I'm not going to say the insult is a better movie. I'm not going to say that, but the insult, the Lebanese movie that I had told every guys about, I like that one a little bit better. Uh, but also because it hits a little closer to home for me, um, you know. But yes, if you guys have not seen a separation, um, go check that out. Uh, you can rent it for four bucks on Vudu. Or I think even YouTube.com. Um, like go to YouTube.com slash movies and rent it. And people always say this shit like, oh, they don't make good movies anymore. Do they make a lot of good movies in foreign languages. You just got to be re- willing to write, uh, read subtitles. And this is, one, this is one such movie. Uh, I've not seen The White Ribbon, but your homework is go see A Separation and go see The Insult. These are really, 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 really good movies. Also, on, um, a good Spanish language movie if you guys have never seen it. Paraíso Travel. Paraiso, um, P-A-R-A-I-S-O, travel, travel. Check that one out. It's about a guy from Colombia who basically goes through the like the Darien Gap and the Coyotes in Mexico to get across. Ends up in New York City, but then ends up getting separated from the people he came with, and has to just kind of like make his way in New York City, like under the harshest of circumstances. It's fucking amazing. John Leguizamo's in it, who is I think either half or full Colombian. But it's all in Spanish, 100% Spanish. So go check that movie out. Uh, think Shakur can get a stoppage tonight. Dude, Shakur is the fucking man. He's the man. He's so goddamn good. He's so goddamn good. So listen, this dude he's fighting, I'm telling you, man, that guy can thump. Edwin De Los Santos, he can thump. He can absolutely crack. And if he cracks, if he lands on Shakur, 
I mean, anything is possible, right? Like, he really has that kind of power. He has round, fight-altering power. But Shakur Stevenson's refinement of technique is something that you just can only see in a handful of guys. Bud Crawford's got a level of it. Noah Inouye's got a level of it. You know, Andre Warden, his prime, had a level of it. Shakur Stevenson is the fucking man. You want to see what premier boxing looks like? Have a gander at him. Dustin writes, Luke, I work for UPS and always listen to MK while on my route. Okay. Just so happens a customer came to greet me in the driveway at the same time of you saying, RJ Dunkel gangbang. LOL. All the love from Indiana. Well, listen. You know, I didn't name him. I didn't name him. That's up to his parents. You know what I'm saying? Glad glad to create some laughs for you, bro. Uh, Sean is a new member. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Afifi asks, if you could ask Dana White a question that he has to answer honestly, what is the question? One question he has to answer honestly. One question. Okay. Ooh. Man, that's a tough one. Um, all right, you know slaps, slap fighting sucks ass, right? <laughs> no, that wouldn't be my one. But uh, that was so funny. Did you guys see Theo Vaughn on um, Interview Dana? And Dana's like, what do you think about slap? And then Theo is like trying to like bend over backwards to make it seem like he likes slap. Guys, if you want an honest opinion, here's an honest opinion on slap. Um, it sucks ass. And it's the lowest form of combat sports for the person who's got the worst palate imaginable for it. So as I mentioned before, you know, Dana making fun of Showtime, I would watch Crawford Spence in 144p before I watched fucking slap in 4K. But all right, in a serious, serious note, um, And he had to answer. Well, the question was, he has to answer honestly. Do you admit the, that the UFC is a monopoly? That'd be my question. Will you admit the UFC is a monopoly? Um, I'd be. That'd be the only. If he had, to, if he had like truth serum injected into his neck or something, that's what I would ask. Uh, Joe says, uh, "Do you agree the Saudi card is the deepest boxing card ever, top to bottom? Sort of." Do you think the Saudis will keep putting on these type of cards? They will as long as, I guess, they see some value in it. Deepest card, I don't know. I mean, sort of, right? Like, there's a lot of... I mean, here's the issue with that card. And it's not really that the card is bad. It's not my point. If you look... Well, the the Better Be fight is... Excuse me. The um, the Bivol fight is a complete waste of time. But, but you know, like... Dude, Otto Valin might beat Anthony Joshua. You know what I'm saying? Like, he might do it, dude. I mean, it's it's competitive. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing about that card, and I said this before. If you look at the card, you'll be like, dude, that's a decent fight. I, I like that one. Eh, I don't like that one so much. I like this one better. But, like, you know, you can look up and down it, and you can see some respectable names, and in a couple of cases, some, like, definitely some good fights. You know, there's like the idea that there's, like, no good fights on the card. Absolutely not true. But not one of those fights is what the market was asking for. Like, before that card was announced, no one was asking for Otto Valin versus Anthony Joshua. There was no organic push 
to get that fight made from the fan base or the media whatsoever. Zero. And it's like, I said this on Twitter, it's like, I understand that, they, you know, they're probably doing the best thing. I mean, if the, if the Saudi money isn't good enough to get Wilder versus Joshua, then, you know, I don't know what is. But the the the, the point is, like, the market demanded steak and they got salad and everyone's like, eh, I'll take it. I'll take it too. I'm not telling you it's a bad card. I'm not saying it's a bad card. But there is this real disconnect between what the market was actually demanding and what was actually delivered. They're not the same. It's just that they had this like smorgasbord of all these other choices on there and like the total weight of it, you're like, eh, that's 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 pretty good. I'll take that. Fine. I'm not I'm not even arguing against watching it. That's nothing what I'm saying. But this idea that like, oh my God, like they really delivered, like they sort of delivered. They put a lot of big names on a card and they put some respectable fights on there. But what they didn't do was look at what the sport was demanding and then deliver it on a fight card. They didn't do that. Um, they tried a, a, an approximate version of that. And they got close in certain cases, but you know, that's it. Andrew writes, is the current political landscape in the U.S. holding back the progression of MMA? The current political landscape? Or is there room to grow under White and his philosophy? Is the current political landscape in the U.S. holding back the progression? I don't think the... the You might be able to argue, or rather a better question might be, is the political leanings and orientations of the UFC which are now explicitly right-wing, is that holding back the sport? And that really will depend. Um, as I've said before, you are definitely going to drive away. I mean, listen, let's just be honest. If they, if, if Dana White had walked out with Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who's a, who's a big, like a like right, left-wing, uh, I don't know, who the fuck's like a left-wing star or something in the way that like Kid Rock is, whoever the fuck whoever the version of that might be, and then they had Tucker Carlson. So imagine they had, I don't know, um, Chris Hayes or some shit, right? They're not the equivalent, but you get the idea. And he walked out, right? There'd be a lot of people who were like, ugh, you know, and they would turn it off and they would want to go away. But conversely, there'd also be a lot of people that'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. Uh, who was it? It was Trump, Kid Rock. It was um, Tucker and it was Dana. So there's going to be people who see that and they're going to be like, oh, that's great. I want to. I definitely want to get on board with that. And then conversely, there's going to be people who look at that and say, that's not for me. So that's not a question of like, did you get more or less fans? But what I do think is happening, and I'm already seeing it over and over again, um, is uh, it will make the fan base more homogenous. That part it will do. It will drive away people who find that kind of leaning odious, and it will recruit people who really enjoy that kind of a thing. And so it will give you less of a mix of the audience in terms of personal political leanings, and it will give you a little bit more of, of one side of it. Um, I I got to tell you, like this whole idea that um, the UFC was going to pay some penalty for Bud Light, I didn't buy that shit at all. Guys, they have a monopoly on the market. Where are you going to go? <laughs> Where are you going to go to watch MMA outside of that? I mean, yes, there's, there's a good um, Bellator show, but they're almost done. Um, PFL... We'll see what happens. But, you know, PFL and Bellator don't have a fan base. I mean, they've got some people that watch them exclusively, but not really. Like, they don't have a fan base in the way that Pride had a fan base. Um, to an extent, even WEC had a fan base or 
Um, I'm trying to think of another one. Um, Dream to an extent overseas. KSW has a fan base, right? KSW has a fan base. It's it's Polish predominantly, but they have a fan base. Uh, but you know, and Bellator has a fan base, I guess, in Ireland and stuff like that. But domestically, they don't have one, and neither does neither does PFL either. They might have one in France by virtue of having Cedric Dumbay or whatever. Uh, but uh, you get the idea. So it, I do think it will create some homogeneity. But whether there will be some kind of pol- like, like uh, social cost to be paid for it. I don't think so. I mean, you're already on ESPN, which is owned by Disney. This is as mainstream as it gets. I don't know what would be more mainstream than what they are. Again, it does turn off some people, but it recruits, you know, seemingly just as many, if not more. So it's not that there's no cost to pay. It's just that in the wash, do you come out with less or more? And I, 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 I guess we'll have to see how things go. But to this point, I would argue it's disingenuous to look at the situation and think the UFC is going to suffer. Um, the current evidence does not. The current evidence does not um, support that claim. But let's see. Since Volk uh, is saying he needs fights to stay sane, I have heard fighters quote in a few interviews feeling the same. I saw this as a red flag, but seems to be the norm. Are most fighters like this? Yes. Most fighters, from what I have talked to or heard from, basically believe that once something is on the calendar and they can pick it, they can look at it, it, now everything in their life has structure and has meaning. And remember, if you're coming off of a loss, which he wasn't before the second Islam fight, but if you're coming off of a loss, it has even more purpose because you've been hanging on to this like notion of defeat for you know for God knows how long, and so it, it it's it's this direction, it's uh, it's order, it's everything, and then there's payday behind it. Like it's so it, it, these these you 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 might fight two times a year, three times a year. These things have enormous value. Yes. Now, you know if you're doing it to like, um, if you're doing what Volk did, which was you're very much unprepared for the moment, well then there can be some real costs to it. But as a general rule, are are fighters inclined to take fights as a means of reestablishing order and purpose in their day-to-day lives? Yes, that that is very clearly true. Oh. Luke, I'd asked you this before, but it never quite materialized when you had your serious show. But do you have any interest in interviewing Infinite Elgin Intensity at all? I looked at his Instagram the other day. He hasn't updated it in like three years or something. I don't even know if he's still doing his... uh, his stuff anymore. Um, I don't know if it make, would make sense at this point. I mean, I, I, I've gotten a great laugh out of his... Uh, he calls the CrossFit Games the washed-up loser Olympics. <laughs> he calls it the washed-up loser Olympics, and he just shits on them. That's very funny. Um, but I haven't seen a whole lot... Re- Maybe I'm missing something, but I haven't seen a whole lot recently. Uh, Michael, thank you for becoming a member. Eric asks, is Cheeto's style the kryptonite to O'Malley? It might be. Feels to me Sean would have to up his volume significantly to have a chance against Cheeto. This is what I said before. Dude, is Cheeto's case for a title shot better than Corey Sandhagen's? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. I don't even think Cheeto would tell you that. Would tell you otherwise. He got 50-45 by the guy. What's he going to say? I have a better case? But, but, I interviewed Cheeto. Even he knows that they have a special thing, he, he and Sean O'Malley this rivalry, and 
the thing that has kind of plagued Sean, not more recently, but for a time in his career, that he was injury-prone, brittle, kind of has not gone away completely. And Cheeto still is the most durable guy maybe in MMA and gets better as the fight goes on. So it's like, dude, he is a tough bastard. He's hard to hurt. He gets better as the fight gets all, gets long, um, longer. And, yeah, I mean, if those things about Sean are true, which, you know, probably are overstated, but we can't say for sure, I understand the, the, the reasoning behind this fight completely. All right, Johnston asks, do you think with his cultural cachet and fighting prowess that Bryce Hall would make a good fit in the UFC? Is this the... Uh, who the fuck is Bryce Hall? Hold on. He's the guy. I saw him on uh, what you call it. He's on, um, he was on BKFC. Bryce Hall is an American social media personality and boxer. He is most known for his videos on TikTok and YouTube. He has 24 million followers. Jesus Christ. What is Lord? He's from Ellicott City, Maryland too. Wow. 24 years old. Yeah. Shoot me in the face, everyone. My, my answer to that question is, uh, please shoot me in the fucking face for what a failure I've become. All right. This my gentleman just put in a donation. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right. Corin asks if humans had four arms like the some Pokemon guy, would striking be more fun or more boring? I have no fucking idea. I have no fucking idea. Probably better. You'd be like what? Goro from uh Mortal Kombat or whatever? If you had four arms, I would imagine it would enhance your grappling significantly as well. Ground and pound would be legit. That's a weird question, dude. Uh, happy belated Veterans Day. Yeah, thanks. I thank you not only for your service this country, but to MMA community. Well, thanks, dude. I appreciate that. A lot of better characters to thank than me, but I'll take it just the same. Did you see what Jamal Hill said about his strategy for fighting Poetan? I did not. I did not. Um, but, you know, he might say one thing now and do a different thing then, so... The thing I judge them on is what they do, not so much what they say. I know you were both with SBN Vox Media, but Spencer Hall would be an incredible guest for a general convo or lifting. Dude, so Spencer Hall, I know very well. EDSBS, uh, every day should be Saturday. That's his uh, screen name, which was the site he ran when he was at SB Nation. We covered the John Jones versus Rashad Evans fight in Atlanta together. So I know Spencer real well. Um, he's the man. Shouts to Spencer. Fucking Spencer is great. And uh, if you like college football, not just that, but if you like college football, he's your man. Holy shit balls! Look at this donation. Bone Hunter. I mean, that sounds like porn. This man must be a pornographer. I don't even know. But I'll take that. Holy shit balls, man. Thanks, dude. Or lady, whoever you are. That's real nice, dude. Thank you. Um, I don't know what to say, Bone Hunter, except enjoy that pornography. All right. Uh, oh, poll results. Didn't get many. Who wins? Oh, y'all giving uh, Hill no chance. No chance. Okay, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. All right, Henry asks, true or false, and really thinking about it, Conor McGregor fights at 300. True. I know what John Cavanaugh said, but still. John Jones will never fight Stipe. False. Bud Crawford TKOs Spence again. True. Wilder KOs Joshua when they fight. Definitely true. Tank fights Pacquiao. Ooh. Ooh. Tank fights Pacquiao. 
Well, I can tell you what I want to say. I want to say false. Ooh, Tank fights Pacquiao. Fuck, man. Is Gervonta going to fight Tank? Sorry, is Gervonta going to fight Pacquiao? Um, I'll say false. I'll say false. It's a good question, though. In your time in the gym, did you train with people who preferred the opposite stance of their dominant hand? Only a couple times. Uh, E.g., many right-handed wrestlers prefer southpaw. Yes, I've seen that. They call it sugarfoot. And Poirier is right-handed as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that a little bit. I actually saw that, believe it or not, and I think it just was anecdotal. I don't think this is quite true. I actually saw that a little bit more in the boxing gym than I did anywhere else. Boxing and then wrestling was where I saw it most. I didn't see it uh, so much with, like, Muay Thai guys. Again, just is strictly anecdotal. I have no way of knowing to what extent that that's a larger pattern. But, yes, I definitely did see it. And it hurts, like, when they jab you. With their, with their lead power hand. It fucking hurts, man. Uh, Henry asks again, do you think there's a chance Joe Rogan will ever invite UBC and Shop to do a fight companion? No. No. No, there's a 0% chance of that. Thoughts on why or why not? Well, one, I don't know if BC would be up for hanging out with Shop. <laughs> don't know. Don't know. I don't know if Shop would be up for hanging out with BC. More to the point, uh, you know, Rogan doesn't even return my text messages anymore. I haven't sent him one in a while, but, you know, that, that thing he said at the end of our conversation ended up being ended up being far more important than I realized at the time. So, yeah, I guess that ship sailed. What are you going to do? Reed says, do you have a top three or top five favorite moment of a fighter realizing they're the champ? For me, it's either the emotional moment when Jamal Hill became champ or the last 20 seconds of Strickland. That was a big one. When, when Randy beat um, Tim Sylvia, for me, is probably got to be the tops because that was so unlikely. That was a big one. Kane beating Brock wasn't as big, but it was big. Um, how about Holly Holm beating Ronda, right? When she's like, she can barely contain herself, like walking around, like touching her face, you know? That joke was terrible for the other guy. Yeah, okay. All right, I don't know. I mean, I guess I just got got with something. I don't know what it is. All right, Felipe asks, how weird and predictable is the silence on MMA and sports media in general regarding the release of fighter pay? Yeah, I mean, we basically know what a lot of the biggest names in the sport have made in the last, you know, uh, at least for a portion of time anyway. And um there's, you know, not much acknowledgement. I, I will tell you, though, that the goalpost shifting on this one has been absolutely delicious to watch. Where before it was like, even when the court documents were out and I've been saying, like, go fucking look at them. Um, you don't get that anymore. People have been like, oh, it's just not true. They don't make, you know, 20% or less. And like now like, there's no denial of it. But what you do get is, oh, yeah, they get 20% or less because that's fair and awesome and good. You know. They've, they've stopped denying that the numbers are true and more are now telling you that the numbers are true, but also awesome, which is basically them surrendering. It's, I mean, that's more or less sur a surrender, but you know, listen, here's what I have noticed that people really want. They want a so-and-so knocked out so-and-so in the gym. So-and-so said a bunch of mean things on social media. Hey, let's take pictures with, uh, you know. The promoter at the event. Let's take pictures with the promoter's guests at the event. They want 
they want everything to be nice. They want everything to be fun. They want everything to be frivolous. They want everything to just be this enjoyable thing. And I understand that. If you're a fan, why would you not want it to be fun? But in order to do that, you have to absolutely carve the piece of your brain out that has any critical thinking skills associated with it whatsoever. And again, ignorance is bliss. I people do that shit. Like I, I sort. It's the way. It's the way of the world, y'all. It's the way of the world. But you know what it is affirmatively not is is journalism, and what it is affirmatively not is curious. I mean, these are deeply, deeply, deeply incurious people. Like they just have no curiosity about the world whatsoever. Don't give a fuck. And and also, it's just a lot of people who are, you know, these are people who love. I said it before, man tell you what if these fighters end up getting their way and they undo the order of everything right all the people downstream who have benefited from this order are gonna be pissed they're gonna be pissed they're gonna be so pissed because they have tied all of their either livelihood or their you know free time or energy or financial situation or whatever they've all tied it into these this situation that required the existing market structure to stay in place and and there are so many people who just love benefiting from that i mean listen i've never been a super happy person so it's hard for me to get here and make a convincing argument to you about how you should be unhappy about the state of mma that's i I don't know how to make that argument to someone or am i even really sure that that is the argument but rather well you can i love the fights i think you guys love the fights i will probably always love the fights but once you once you learn how the sausage is made it is very very hard to unlearn it It it's very very hard to not see it anymore it is very very hard to look the other way and the people who can do that with all the information that we have and then look the other way i have no respect for these people zero fucking none none at all now some people are in denial that's not who i'm talking about the people who are still in denial who have to be you can't insult your way into getting them to believe you you have to convince them that's not who i'm talking about um there's a lot of people who need convincing fair enough the people who don't need convincing, the people who can look at it and be like, I just don't give a fuck, you know, like, fuck these people. You know, I, I like what I like. I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of the established order. It's just going to be what it's going to be, you know, tough titties. I don't, ha- I don't have an ounce of respect for these people, including there's media folks like that. Media, There's been media folks who have been... Slave isn't the right word. There have been media folks who have spent their career covering the sport lying to the public about the truth on behalf of established power and so the established power could maintain the order that they benefit from. I don't have respect for their people, these people. I don't have respect for their opinion. I don't have respect for their career. And some of them have bigger audiences than me. Some have smaller. It runs the gamut. But... Um, I don't know how you could do this job and wake up every day and know what the actual truth is and then just decide you're not going to pay attention to it. <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know how to turn that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know. I don't know how someone could. I mean, they do. People do it. I get that they do it. But And this isn't some grand like, oh, I, I have made all the most moral decisions. Like, I literally don't even understand how it's possible. 
I'm not talking about like making a very difficult moral choice where like great sacrifice is in order. I've done all right. I've done all right. I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about leveling with the audience. Just leveling with them. If you can't even level with the audience, what the fuck are you doing in this job? What the fuck are you doing in this job, man? You know? Uh, this dude or person became a member. Thank you. Luke, really enjoyed your sit down with Sandhagen. I thought the flow of the interview and the vibe between you two was dope. Any other thinking fighters of that ilk you'd like to have one-on-one with? Well, I'm going to go back to that gym. I'm going to do one with Ryan Hall. I'm going to do one with Ryan Hall. So that will be one that will be, as soon as he, I told him, as soon as he gets a fight booked and he might have one booked coming up, um, we're going to go right back there and do the same thing with him. So that'll be a lot of fun. But, you know, it just requires a fighter being in this area. And um, there are some fighters over at Team Lloyd Irvin, but I don't feel it's appropriate for me to go over there. So I have to pass on those. Uh, question for me. All right, thoughts on John Nash and Chael Sonnen beefing about UFC contracts. Weird to see Chael being such a shill even away from the UFC. Um, I mean, I don't – I love Chael – and I've known Chael for a long time, and Chael's always been great. We had a beef one time. You know, you can see that that video might still be up. You can go and see that. We squashed it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think John Nash is in is anything but correct. I, I've, I've been, um, I love Chael, but I find his arguments on this uh, very unpersuasive. Um, that's my personal opinion. I'm not going to sit here and bash Chael. I like Chael a lot. I think Chael's been great for the game in general, but... His arguments on this have just been like I saw one was um, that like the UFC couldn't book Jones versus Ngannou because it'd be illegal for the UFC to like try and sign the services of Francis. But that's not that's not really an actual rebuttal to anything anyone is saying. Yes, of course, if they tried to interfere with his PFL contract, that would be illegal. But that's not the mechanism by which you would do it. It's just UFC goes to PFL and says you want to make it. And then there is, you know, negotiations that happen with all the parties thereafter. Um, there is nothing stopping them from making it. So, like, saying, yes, you can't interfere with this contract, that is technically true, but also um, irrelevant. So, you know, uh, John John has been very convincing to me, and it's because the evidence is on his side. And I, I think everyone should kind of wake up to that fact. Oh, wait, hold on. From this person. Why hasn't a UFC fighter applied for a boxing license and used the Aliyah claim they're a boxer now to get out of their UFC contract? Because they'd have to challenge it in court. Has there not been a martyr willing to do this? This has been something we've been wondering that someone... Oh, excuse me. Whoops. This has been something we've been wondering that somebody might try that they haven't tried yet. Um, but you would have to just be willing to fight this out in court. And these guys, con- these guys' careers are that long. Like... You don't have time or the or the overall ability to do it. Um, that's why. Where did I leave off? Oh, here we go. Uh, Tony says, would love to hear your thoughts on the Palestinian genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't commented on it uh, publicly very much. You know what's funny? I'll say this. I'll say this. You know what? I think I can even pull it up. I think I can even pull it up. Let's see. Let's see. Let me show this to you. Um, 
I want to show you something. I don't know if you guys ever saw this. Here we go. All right. Let me let me pull this up here. Okay, I'm going to show you this tweet. And um, let me see if I can do this correctly. Jesus Christ, I got a million different fucking um, windows open. Oh, for crying out loud. No, not now. Oh, Christ. Christ on crutches. Here we go. Okay. Let me move this back over here. All right. Now, let me show you this one. fuck's sake is this it yeah all right let me show you this oops fucking a hold on if you can't read it i will blow it up so you can this is what i wrote in 2018 look at the date october 22nd 2018 quote this doesn't get much mention uh and i don't have the right answers but there is a growing international concern of Israel becoming an apartheid state. Bellator hosting events there relatively consistently merits at least a question of where these organizations stand on these issues. I bring this up to say a few things, if I may. Um, pull this back over here. I bring this up to say a few things, if I may. Do you remember, was it one or two weeks ago that folks were saying I was being unusually harsh? Uh, I, I think you remember Justin Gaethje was getting after me and some other folks just about uh, how unfair I was to Arab governments. Guys, show me any other MMA media member who ha besides Kareem Zidane, who has asked questions or, you know, in any kind of way raised concerns all the way back in 2018 about the state of the uh, Israeli government and their treatment of Palestinians and the, and the way in which they had uh, carried their business that was, con that was concerned about it all the way back then. Show me who that was. And I want to tell you a story about that tweet. I've never told this before. Of all the countries that I've ever criticized for any kind of issue, whether it's China and the, uh, the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims or the UAE and, you know, we had this whole safe, not safe controversy and then Saudi Arabia executing people and whatever... The only time I've ever gotten uh, an angry phone call from a very powerful corporate entity was when I criticized or when I when I tweeted that about Israel. That's the only time that's ever happened. No one's ever called me from a very corporate ent powerful entity when I said anything about Saudi Arabia or when I say anything about UAE. Other, other people might have been mad about it or something like that. But the hell that I had to pay privately for that tweet went on for weeks and months and maybe even years. People being upset about it all the way back in 2018. Folks, not new to this. Not new to this controversy, not new to any of this. And I was the only one, the only one, except maybe Kareem Zidane, the only one raising these kinds of issues. Like who else raised an issue about Bellator going to Israel when they did other than me? Who was it? Who was it? Now, even as I say all of this to you, I don't know if the next thing I say will ultimately force me to get fired or canned or whatever. So I have to be very, very careful in today's climate 
about that which I say. But um, it's the same thing I've been saying since all of this. I mean, I haven't, you know. I need to be very careful about this. I think what is going on currently, uh, okay, so you want my personal opinion um, very much in favor of a ceasefire. I think a ceasefire is absolutely needed uh, and frankly the only moral position at this point. Um, let me just say this because I think if I say anything else, I'll, I, I mean, just that tweet alone, just that tweet alone, you cannot imagine the phone calls I got and the phone calls I got from who. And that has never happened with any other country I've ever criticized. And again, people got bitter in other ways, like on social media or whatever, but UAE or whatever. But in terms of like, you know, um, a check yourself moment from a powerful entity down to me, um, that's the only country that's ever happened. Uh, to, for me. And by the way, I've never deleted that tweet and I never will delete that tweet. I don't regret ever tweeting that. And I think if anything, um, we've gotten to a place now where people are more able to examine the greater realities. I will just say this to keep myself, um, you know, in a reasonable place. One, as I said previously, um, I think the president has acted in a way that is absolutely despicable and uh, incomprehensible and so morally egregious that I have, I can, I can't even stomach the look of him and would never, ever, ever, ever be able to forgive him. Not possible. Not possible, nor nor any of the flax carrying water for what this government and our taxpayer dollars are going towards. Not possible. Cannot forgive him. It is so morally heinous. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. The last thing I would say is um, my personal belief, and you can take it however you want, unless the powers that be have some kind of uh, political solution to the realities of Palestinian misery, um, nothing will ever get better. In, unless there is some actual plan to acknowledge uh, why, after 75 years, essentially, um, of a military occupation or an occupation but since 67 a military occupation unless there is some kind of political solution not a military one to provide the long overdue justice that they are deserved um, and to deal with the, the reality of why their misery exists I fear for all parties involved including innocent Israeli parties I fear that nothing will ever get better. And I don't think anything ever has gotten better because there has never been any kind of political solution or will to actually honor um, the reality of their condition. You know. So what do I think about it? I, can, I can't even tell you what I think about it. 
But I hope that those brief windows into that give you some idea of where I am. And the people, by the way, who didn't like that tweet that I sent in 2018, um, some of them, we are good people and we just had a difference of opinion. But there's a couple of them um, that, how do I say this? Oh. <laughs> Um, there's one person in particular I'll tell you about who's kind of behind some of the pushback on that. And it's not who you imagine, by the way. Uh, or maybe it is, I don't know, but probably not. Um, I- I'll-, I'll have more to say about that person later. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. All right. Uh, Anil says, one thing about Dana White, Francis Ngannou question from a consumer's perce- perspective when MMA media asks tough questions, forget about journalist ethic. It's a much more engaging product for us consumers. I wait. One thing about the Dana White. Okay, when media asks tough questions, right? I mean, controversy and um, conflict sells. That doesn't make it a better process for the truth. It just makes it better to eat popcorn with. I mean, I I agree that it's probably better to eat popcorn with, but. It's not helping anything. In fact, it's making things actively worse, and I don't take great joy in that. Sharice Davids. Yes, that's the other MMA fighter from Kansas who is a congressperson, congresswoman. But she doesn't have quite the name that Mark Wayne Mullen does, so there you go. After Izzy Sean, how applicable is a bladed Philly shell style at MMA? Somewhat. What skill sets would best complement such a style, and what influencers, boxers, should MMA fighters look to? The thing about this is we kind of discussed it before. Sean's way of making that work, because he's not nearly as bladed. He's actually a little bit more square. The reality of that situation is that he has refined that over time through trial and error. So, like, what broad lessons can you take? The broad lesson is there's probably more defensive ways to approach an MMA striking contest, but that the way in which he chose is inefficient, but he makes it work because of the time and commitment he put into it when others won't. So he's got this novel style that's like hard to address, but he probably had to make a lot of errors along the way that folks just don't want to deal with when they're coming up on the way. So is it a more applicable? Probably, but it requires investment early and then a consistent willingness to work on it. So Anil says, in regards to the fanboyism around Elon or Dana, I never cheerlead for billionaires. It's like a medieval peasant cheering for the feudal lords. Also more to the point, like, dude, if you're a millionaire, I've said this on this, on this live chat, if you're a millionaire, you don't get to say you can't be made fun of. Like, if you're filthy rich, you get people can shit on you. You can't say shit back. That's just how it goes. Like, eat shit. You're, you're, you just have to take it. Not unfair, like, cancel culture shit. I'm not talking about that. But, like, you know, funny insults, you just have to take it. Reed says, I feel like everyone relishes the moments you say, good question. BC's face seems to light up when you acknowledge a solid one. In the realm of MMA, MMA, uh, what do you think constitutes a good question? Someone asking precisely what the real essence of something is about. Or um, we have to figure out where this is headed. What does it really come down to? When you can distill something to its essential elements and make it really about that, that's a good question. 
Brian says, love to get your thoughts on the DC-Rogan combo. DC is not well-spoken. That's not true. And they are so premature on submission calls. That is true. Give me Sanko Felder all day. Sank- Laura Sanko is the best color commentator they have. People are like, oh, you're saying that because she's a woman and blah, 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 blah. Dude, sorry. By any measurement, she's the best one. And I think she doesn't like it when I say that. She's never told me this. But I don't think she likes it when I say that because I think it puts a bit of a, a magnifying glass on some of the weaknesses of the other ones. No one is as technically detailed as Laura Sanko. That's a fucking fact. Listen to me very clearly. Not one of the other commentators in the broad scope of MMA, like DC obviously really knows wrestling, but in the broad scope of MMA, none of them are as technically adept and sharp and quick with the sort of reference material as Laura Sanko. On top of that, she does fuck tons of homework, and it shows. Dude, she's over-prepared for these things, not under. So first of all, she's the best one they got. And by the way, Felder's great as well. Like, he's a strong, strong addition to a team. I, I agree. Her and uh, Felder working together, two thumbs up, no complaints. The DC-Rogan combo, I actually don't mind when they're... The problem is they end up turning into a podcast where they get a little bit chummy. And then they're kind of cracking jokes and having a good time. And if that's for you, that's for you. But I think for a lot of people, including me, I would rather them dial down the chumminess. I don't want them to be adversaries. Like, I never liked it when Jim Lampley and What's-His-Face were, like, trying to out-Shakespeare the other guy. It seems... Not not Max Kellerman, but the Howard Letterman. Or no. Was it him? Harold Letterman? Who the fuck was it? The other guy. The one who told Mayweather, I'm going to kick your ass. What was his name? Um, God, what the fuck? Anyway. Um... That that's no that's that's I don't want too distant, remote, professorial nonsense like that either. But something in between I think is a little bit better. The problem is when Rogan and DC get together, it's too podcasty. It's not commentary. It's a different it's a different thing. Gator says, Is a certain MMA YouTuber so impactful that you must censor his name from the super chat? I don't know who that might be. I don't know who that might be. Uh I don't know. All right, let's see. I don't watch a lot of MMA YouTube. All right. Yvonne says, if nobody knew how good Francis would be against Tyson Fury, how can anyone say he was underprepared? How could he prepare for someone? What? If nobody knew how good Francis would be against Tyson, how could we say he was underprepared? How can anyone say he was under? Oh, how can anyone say that Fury was underprepared? The question was whether or not, like, did he watch tape? Did he take it seriously? Did he do the rounds? Did he do the sparring? Um, I don't... There's a there's a debate about that. It just looked like he didn't do the requisite work to be ready for that moment, even with the awkwardness. I don't know what rounds he did, but it kind of looks that way, right? Reed says, Can you hear the commentary when you go to a live fight? Not usually. Recently, I found that the commentary can kind of ruin intense moments in fights. Do you think the UFC should allow you to turn off commentary? They used to offer alternate commentary. You can hear Spanish commentary. uh, And they've kind of gotten... I think you can still hear Spanish, obviously. But in general, like the alternate commentary or like just hearing the corners. You used to be able to get that on Fight Pass. You can't get that now. So it's like... um, I, I, I preferred it when they give you choices. But, you know, to each his own. All right, let's get through this. We've been going for two hours. If you could watch and listen to two people, dead or alive, have a two-hour podcast, who would you choose? Dead or alive? Jesus. Um, 
Uh, yeah, you know what? Right now, it would be Edward Said and whoever could be a good interview with him. How about that? Edward Said. Uh, ben, thank you for becoming a member. Uh, Lydian, 84. No question, just thanks. By the way, your interview with Corey Sandhagen was exceptional. Yes, thank you. Um, and then last, from Ben. Yeah, thanks, dude. All right. That's a long one. It's a long one. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. You are the best. This will be up on podcast either tonight or first thing tomorrow morning. I'm going to change out the thumbnail. I appreciate you guys. Thanks to Othello for being here as well as everybody else. Thanks for taking the polls. Uh, you can email me, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. And until next time, folks, stay frosty. Bye.